We live in a world that is always evolving, changing, and rebuilding itself. MIMA are on a mission to ensure that in this fast-moving world, we don't lose sight of what matters, people. This podcast will bring together thinkers from parallel industries to discuss how human-centered design can solve complex and crucial business challenges and create a more sustainable future with design. The series will allow the sharing of ideas, the opportunity to step into different terrains, create connections, and the creative thinking we need to keep designing and creating a better world. Hear us in conversation with some of the most interesting, boundary-pushing people working in design or design-adjacent fields, discussing the importance and positive impact design has on our everyday lives. This series is for the curious, the playful, the creative, and the creators. Welcome to our first episode in this podcast series by MIMA. We're a human-centered design agency that believes in working together with our clients and partners to make infrastructure accessible and inclusive to all. I'm Emily Yates, Head of Accessibility and Inclusive Design, one of your hosts for this series. And I'm Ollie Bennett-Coles, Head of Marketing at MoMA, your co-host for this podcast, and we're excited to hear from two people with a passion to make the world we live in more accessible. If you're thinking you've not heard of MoMA before, if you've collided atoms at CERN, attended Dubai Expo 2020, been on a network rail train, or even passed through Heathrow Airport, the chances are that you've experienced some of our work. We've been doing business for over 40 years and are still as curious and passionate today about designing better environments and experiences as we've ever been. So, who can you expect to hear from in this podcast series? People who are pushing boundaries in their respective fields and share our values and curiosity. We'll show learnings and expertise, challenge one another, and hopefully inspire better design possibilities for you, our listeners. So let's introduce our guests. First up, we have Fiona Slater, Head of Access and Equity at Science Museum Group. SMG are responsible for five museums across the UK that discuss the trials and triumphs of science, technology, engineering and medicine. We're currently involved with four of these museums at MIMA. In her role, Fiona is responsible for the inclusive experiences that visitors to these museums and spaces have. Welcome, Fiona. Hi, I'm happy to be here, Emily. Thanks for inviting me. And our second guest is Kirk Goodlett, a senior director in DeVistas, a global management consulting firm with extensive expertise in aviation, transportation, and tourism. Kirk specializes in strategic planning, biometric technologies, the future of mobility, and helping organizations identify and remove barriers to equal access. Pleasure to have you, Kirk. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's talk about each of your journeys. Why are you passionate about this area and what led you to do what you're doing now? Fiona, let's start with you. So I've always had a passion for arts and cultural sector. I studied costume design at university, which is something that I've not actually gone into, but I'm still paying back to this day. One of the first jobs I had when I did graduate was as a support assistant for disabled dancers on a really groundbreaking dance course with Kanduko Dance Company. And a part of that role was going to see contemporary dance and experience contemporary dance. But that highlighted a number of the kind of barriers within the sector in terms of absolutely no audio description, very kind of inaccessible. And this is kind of nearly 20 years ago now. But I'd say some of those barriers still persist today. And after that role, I worked for a number of years at a 
organisation called Shape Arts, which is a disability-led arts organisation, working with disabled artists often in residencies with museums and galleries, so working with museums and galleries across the UK to, to host disabled artists. And again, it was an insight into some of the prevailing barriers for disabled people to try and kind of engage and work with museums and galleries, let alone as, as visitors. So I think moving into the museum sector and my current role at the Science Museum Group is an opportunity to kind of think through some of those barriers and try to kind of affect and, and change from the inside. Brilliant. Kirk, what about yourself? So I started my career in aviation about 10 years ago, and I started working at Toronto Pearson, Canada's largest airport for the airport operator, the Greater Toronto Airports Authority, before I moved to a smaller international airport at Winnipeg Richardson International Airport. And in all of my roles, starting from the front line on the, on the ground, all the way into management, I always focused on the passenger experience or, or customer experience, looking at the ways in which I could help improve and create this seamless flow uh, from curb to gate at, at the airport. But what really gave my work more meaning was becoming a father to a child with a disability and and taking on that um, type of advocate role that uh, a parent must must play in my particular situation. And so I I tried to bridge a lot of my my personal passion, um, uh, personal experience as a caregiver and as a, a parent advocate with my professional uh, life at uh, at the airport. I left aviation to take on a role, as you pointed out in the introduction, as a senior director at a consulting firm called InterVistas, which is headquartered in Vancouver. We focus on, among other things, strategic planning, universal access, uh, technology for all modes of transportation and mobility. So not just aviation, but um, a good deal of marine sector work and, and rail as well. Thank you both. Really, really interesting. Moving on to discuss your current roles now, give us an idea, both of you, probably starting with you again, Fiona, of what your day-to-day looks like. What would you say are your most challenging and rewarding parts of your job? So, because as you'd mentioned, there's five museums and we have an archive as well near Swindon. There's always loads going on. It involves obviously quite a lot of meetings on teams and emails flying around. But we've always got, because my role is on the sort of public facing side of access and equity, it's thinking about our buildings and facilities and thinking about the public programme. And we've always got new, as Maima know, we've always got new kind of galleries being developed, temporary exhibitions being put together. So thinking about access and equity, it runs throughout all of that. So it's also about making sure that we kind of capture what we're doing when it's working well, making kind of guidelines so we can kind of actually follow and build on those processes and it doesn't just get forgotten about. And then we're sort of reinventing the wheel each time. I'd say that links to what you were talking about in terms of challenges. I think one of the challenges is that we do have a turnover of, of staff um, and often, you know, with a new team, there is a kind of institutional memory and remembering and recording what we're doing so we can kind of build on it each time because we do spend a huge amount of time at the beginning of projects researching and thinking about approaches. But I think one of the challenges is to make sure that we continue 
the conversation and we retain all of that knowledge and we share it across the sector. So that's what we're really trying to do is make sure we're really well linked up with, with our colleagues, but also peers across the wider museum and cultural sector and further afield in aviation potentially (laughs) so yes that's one of the biggest challenges rewards I think are just connections and opportunities to connect to audiences where initiative or a change has made a big difference so we've been thinking a lot about sensory access in our museums and thinking about how people have more information but also more sort of there's more flexibility in the design so that people who want a different who who need a quieter environment or who need a slightly different environment have that option and we get feedback from people about how essential that is to their visit how they wouldn't be able to come if those adaptations weren't weren't made and that that is probably the most rewarding and it makes a difference and and actually those kind of things aren't big they don't require a huge amount of investment sometimes they just require a little bit of time and a bit of thought so they are probably i'd say one of the most rewarding elements hearing when it when it goes well it's also useful to know when it's not going well <laughs> but, but the positive feedback is good too Amazing. Thank you so much, Fiona. And how about you, Kirk? What about your challenges and rewards day to day? So uh, working with a variety of clients in airports, airlines, port authorities on the marine sector, it is quite rewarding in the sense that I'm able to help influence just the, the extent to which we can focus on barrier identification and removal and, and hopefully the prevention of introducing barriers in the first place to all of a client's services, facilities, products. And so just having that influence and being able to highlight some of these challenges, which a lot of clients don't actually know exist in the first place, I think is very rewarding for me. And so being able to help shape a strategy, for example, a strategic plan for a port authority over the next five years and making sure that accessibility and equal access are are baked in to how they see the future and how they deliver services and, and facilities is an extremely rewarding experience for me. And I, I think it's the diversity of, of work for me that is quite rewarding. As I said, one day I'll be working with an airline that's looking at a, an accessibility program and the next I'll be working with a ferry operator in a very different marine environment. And so just being able to highlight that the barriers do exist in the first place and helping in some way, some small way, educating clients is uh, extremely rewarding for me. That's great. Thank you so much. And a question for you, Fiona. Why is human-centered design so important in what you do? And can you tell us a little bit more about how you're bringing it into your work at SMG? I think... Because we are a public institution, we welcome kind of thousands of of people to the museums each day. So if we're not thinking and talking to humans and the people that are coming onto our sites and accessing our collection, then we're not necessarily going to be doing the best job. So we need to be talking to people, finding out what matters to them, how they want to access the, the collection, just getting insight from people because it's often through those conversations that we have insight and we can approach things in slightly different ways. So we definitely believe working in partnership with people, in consultation with people who have lived experience of potential barriers that we want to remove in the museums is really central to all of our kind of planning. 
when it comes to new galleries and exhibitions. So yes, we've been working with a number of advisory groups. So we might, when we're starting on a new project, we might convene a kind of group to, to help us think through some of the designs and just have conversations with people about approaches so that they can be at the beginning of that journey with us so it's not about retrofitting something it's not about kind of opening a shiny new gallery and then visitors come in and say why have you done it like that or that doesn't work and it's about having those conversations from the beginning I think it means that we potentially have less surprises because we've been engaged and having those conversations with audiences at the start so it means that hopefully when we are open there's going to be less need to retrofit and to kind of tag on sort of different approaches and accessible resources because we will have done that thinking through. Kirk, you've mentioned previously in your work that you tried to focus on accessibility barriers rather than the impairments that disabled people have. Can you explain what you mean by that and what those barriers are? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's really, really helpful, I, I think, for especially others who might not think about accessibility every day to really focus on the barrier and not the disability. And the reason for that is... What I do see is organizations that focus on specific disabilities, and it's very easy to do what I call solutionizing, and that is have an app for somebody who is blind or have an app for somebody who has a cognitive disability. And by the end of the selection of five or six apps, you don't actually address the systemic problem of the barrier that an individual would encounter and you don't have a coherent program or a strategy related to barriers and to support equal access. And, and so in my work, I really do emphasize the barrier. And, and as you mentioned, there are five. And really, there's attitudinal barriers. So it's, it results when people with disabilities are treated differently than people without disabilities. That's largely a, a training-related problem. There's information and communication barriers. So that's a barrier that arises when a, a person with a disability can't easily receive or understand information that's available to others. There's technological barriers. So that occurs when technology or the ways in which it's used doesn't meet the, the, the needs of people with disabilities. There are systemic barriers. So that's a policy, practice, procedure, that results in some people receiving unequal access or even being excluded from things. And then there's the physical and architectural barrier. And that's, that's I think, most visible to people that's uh, in the environment that would prevent physical access from participating or accessing a building or something like that. And so when you begin to frame things in terms of barriers, you do address the, the real I'll say systemic problem, which is that when when the environment is evaluated and you can start to identify these barriers, you have a, a very clear path to remove the barriers. And I think Fiona said it very well, eventually it's a lot cheaper to prevent barriers from being introduced in the first place rather than doing an expensive change request once a building is constructed or um, or introduced. So that's, that's really, really what I try to focus on. And I find that it, once people are aware of those barriers, it's much easier for people to begin to identify them. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Can you tell us about a specific project you've worked on where the focus was on inclusivity? 
What was the, the project and how did you go about trying to meet the brief? Yeah. So one example I'd like to highlight is working with a client, an airline located in, in Canada. And I worked with them to develop a new accessibility plan and a, and a strategy specifically related to equal access. And it was a really rewarding experience for me, but it involved going through all of their existing training programs, all of their policies and procedures for services, both on the ground at the airport, as well as on board the aircraft related to flight attendants and instructional policies. And in order to conduct a bit of a gap analysis to see what they had done well, what they could certainly improve on, or maybe things that they hadn't really thought of in the first place. But in order to, to really get into some of the more systemic challenges that the airline faced, I brought together some participants who have lived experience, participants with disabilities, and they volunteered to work with me to test this airline. So we adopted a, a secret shopper type of approach where only two people from the airline were aware that these passengers were actually going to test the airline. And we made reservations, we had booking codes. It was a very legitimate experience uh, for the employees. They would have known nothing that this was actually a test. And so we went through at different times to observe and to evaluate. And I collected all this feedback based on that experience that these, these individuals collected following their experience. And I categorized that feedback based on those five barriers that I just mentioned, the attitudinal, built, physical, technological, information, communication, and, and systemic. And there were a lot of key lessons that came out of that, that I don't think the airline would have picked up on or appreciated as, as much as, as uh, they did once they actually heard from people with the experience. And I'll just mention a few key lessons learned. One was the service dogs and angles of view. So stanchions, I, I call them stanchions in Canada. Maybe you call them tensors. I'm not, I'm not sure, but basically those, those things that you use to organize cues. Stanchions are often unnoticed by service dogs because of the angle of view, which can lead to an accident for the passenger. So the passenger, if they need to make turns and navigate a snake-like queue, a service dog might not see that and potentially lead the individual into a trip and fall or an accident. And so the easy fix there is to straighten the queue and to have a direct access to passenger service representative instead of that snake-like approach. The second key lesson was building in adaptive strategies or assistive technologies to training programs. The flight attendant that dealt with one of the, the participants who is deaf, she had asked for the flight attendant to use Siri to do a talk to text on a mobile phone, but the flight attendant insisted on writing by hand uh, using a pen and paper, which was quite slow. And, um, could lead to a misinterpretation of, of safety-related information. And so the, the key lesson was to, to really take that feedback from people with lived experience and incorporate it into, into your standard operating procedures. So leveraging the, the assisted technologies we have to improve the experience. 
The third lesson uh, and the last one I'll, I'll, um, I'll stop with is the really the difficulty and the challenge to address barriers related to what I'll call non-apparent disabilities or hidden disabilities. That was really, really interesting to watch the ways in which staff engage people because when an individual shows up with a service dog, for example, it can be a very clear indicator to the staff that this person faces certain types of barriers much more than a, an individual with dementia or Alzheimer's or autism spectrum disorder. And, and so that is something that the airline really needs to focus on in terms of training and awareness and to address those attitudinal barriers. But the result for this airline is, is just a much more mature, robust strategy and future focus on barriers across the organization. And all of that is predicated on good consultation with people with lived experience and disabilities. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kirk. And thank you for sharing some of those key learnings as well. That's uh, it's really great. And Fiona, can you share a little bit more about some of the projects you're working on at the moment? Yeah, sure. We've, like I said, new galleries and exhibitions sort of continuously being developed. One of the ones which is soon to be open, so just to give you a sort of sneak preview, is an interactive gallery in the National Railway Museum in York called Wonder Lab. And that's going to be a, an interactive gallery for family, very hands-on. And we've been working with an advisory group to, as I said before, kind of look over some of the designs and working with yourself, Emily, to, to kind of guide us through some of that and having conversations with other local charities like the Snappy Trust, who are based in York and work with young disabled children to think about the approach to design and changes we can make to, to ensure that that's a really accessible and enjoyable and engaging gallery for, for everyone. So I think it's been around as I said before, some of the challenges with a space like that, we have Wonder Lab galleries in some of our other sites and they tend to be really busy. They tend to be really sometimes quite noisy, um, energetic spaces. So thinking a lot around the sensory access and how people could adapt that. Just simple things like having ear defenders to loan and having the option to turn down or turn up the experience, the flexibility to, to adapt that space. And then also we've been thinking about additional access resources like tactile models and things that where something could do with a bit of an additional kind of uh, resource to, to guide people through and help them get kind of hands on if they want to do that. So it's about kind of having options and flexibility throughout the gallery, I'd say. And it's an approach that we'll be taking back, I think, to some of the existing Wonder Lab galleries and thinking about how we've been thinking around the design for interactives and if there's things that we could learn from this process that we can take back to some of the existing galleries as well at some of the other sites. I think that's probably one of the, the, the latest ones we've been thinking through and it's going to be opening soon. So if anyone's based in the UK or around York, they can come and, and tell us how we've done when it's open. Brilliant. Thank you, Fiona. And in terms of learning, you mentioned there the the desire to take some of those learnings from the new Wonder Lab back to existing ones. What are your aspirations for projects in the future at SMG and where would you like those learnings to take you? 
I think we want to, through all of these conversations we're having, it's about building partnerships with, with people that we can continue the conversation with and, and people that can come in and sort of challenge our thinking. So I think with all of this, it's not about having, you know, it's not kind of one and done. It's about continuing the conversations with people and building up those really sort of trusted relationships. We've been thinking through as well how through the advisory groups how people are paid and for their time and remunerated for uh, their experience and expertise. We're not treating consultants differently to people that come through and give us their experience through advisory groups. So the aspirations, I guess, is that we just continue to do this through each of the kind of new projects and how people can have maybe more creative control over the spaces and feel kind of a sense of ownership when they come in the gallery so that they can actually see the mark that they've made and they can feel like they've had a part and kind of helped to co-design that space and yeah I mean the, the museums we want them to be open for all we want them to be for everyone it is everybody's collection so we want to definitely through these advisory groups and consultations for people to feel that and to feel that sense of ownership yeah so important so important question for both of you next. How do you see your respective industries changing in the future? What would you say the kind of main challenges to getting there and what can we do to overcome them? Fiona, let's start with you. I think one of the interesting challenges for us is thinking about ourselves as an organisation and the makeup and representation of, of staff in museums. Um, uh, it's not, I'm dealing more with the public facing side of it, but we are thinking a lot about um, workforce diversity at the moment. York, the National Railway Museum, we currently have working with a project called Curators for Change, which is run by Accentuate at Screen South. And, and it's a project which basically looks at, it was thinking about representation of disabled people in museums and galleries, but realising that until you have disabled curators um, working in those spaces, really that expertise is really needed from, from within. So the project is to work with aspiring disabled curators and put them in placement and internship with a, a museum and hopefully leading to sort of a career within that sector. So uh, we're working with somebody at uh, the National Railway Museum and I think those kind of internships and placements at a kind of entry level are really important but when they lead to real long-term sort of sustained roles within the sector I think that's that is potentially a challenge and something we need to focus on I could probably go on but I think that's the main one that kind of springs to mind at the moment and one that we want to focus on at SMG. Absolutely what about yourself Kirk? I think one of the biggest challenges is just combating the the echo chamber in which a lot of our conversations take place and and what I mean by that is the people who are advocates and who work in this space, we all strive for the same things. And we we all imagine a more barrier-free, in my case, a transportation system. But what we really need is to bring others into this conversation, other decision makers across organizations. For example, commercial teams. I, I think there's a huge commercial opportunity to, to be a barrier-free organization, a barrier-free airport, transportation system. I always use these these data points because I think they're really, really telling. And the combined purchasing power of Americans with disabilities is $577 billion per annum. In Canada, it's $55 billion per annum. And I'm sure it's commensurate in the UK. And so if that isn't a, a market segment, 
I don't know what is. And and there needs to be greater focus on on this as a, a market segment. We have an aging population across the world. According to the World Health Organization, one in six people have a disability currently, and that's about 15% of the global population. So we we need to bring all these other individuals and decision makers into the conversation. And and right now, I, I'll say that there's a lot of work to do in this space. I don't think we're doing a, a good enough job, and it's it's up to, to us, people like my mom, people like my organization, Fiona as well, to to really continue the conversation and maintain some of the momentum we've picked up over the last decade or so. Absolutely. So what tools and resources should organizations use to help them to design these inclusive spaces and experiences? And if we have any listeners that would love to make a positive change, but don't quite know where to start, what would your first steps advice be? Kirk, we'll start with you this time. Sure. I, I think part of the challenge is getting organizations to think in terms of barriers. And part of that is closely connected to training and, and awareness. And if you aren't trained or aren't aware, then how are you going to identify barriers in the first place? So a good place to start is really maniacal focus on training and awareness across the organization in order to, to start identifying barriers. And I mean, there are maturity models out there. Business Disability Forum in the UK is is one that that has a, an accessibility maturity model. But it's starting the conversation, getting input from, as Fiona rightly pointed out, these advisory committees, people with lived experience to to identify areas of opportunity. And I think a great place is also incorporating these perspectives into your workforce making sure that you you have a diverse work, workforce and it's not just diversity equity inclusion but it's diversity equity inclusion and accessibility leading to to belonging and i think i could talk a lot about audits and quality assurance process but i think the the foundation on which all of that builds is really awareness and that's not a sexy topic by any means but it's it's such an important one fiona what do you think yeah, I would definitely second that. I would agree that the resources that we need often are just in having conversations with people, making sure that you make the time for that at the earliest possible moment. And when you think that is the earliest possible moment, it's even earlier, like have the conversation before you even know that you need to have the conversation. Because you can't just speak to one disabled person about their lived experience and feel like you've consulted with everybody. And so it's really important to make the time to have varied and nuanced conversations I think and in terms of resources I I think just for us to all be thinking and sharing this across the sector and thinking in kind of new and creative ways it I think often we've been certainly within the, the museum sector we've been quite fixed and rigid about how we approach things and it's about creating your gallery and then creating a series of resources the excess resources that kind of reinterpret for different audiences but we need to think about creative ways of doing this so that things are embedded and they're seamless and they feel like they're part of the whole design so I think that is definitely starting to happen more and it's happening because things are more disability led and are kind of being led by these advisory groups so I think we need to just take the time to go out and find those best practice kind of cases and and, and sort of really share that and and make sure that we're kind of building on that. And I just think for for people who are kind of wondering about how to get involved, I think it's just around if you do see something that's exciting or interesting or a good approach, just have the conversation. I mean, I've certainly found that 
people always really willing to make the time and talk about how they've gone about something and, and share their kind of insight. It's always flattering to be asked like how some, you've done something. So I think go out and ask um, the questions and have those conversations <laughs> at the risk of repeating myself. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with what both of you said. And final question to conclude our chat. If you both had the opportunity to dream big, could you name an ideal project that you'd love to work on in the future and why? Fiona, let's start with you. Oh, that's a big one. We're often kind of in an existing museum or gallery, we're sort of retrofitting to a certain extent. We have existing spaces and we're trying to build on top of existing spaces, often heritage sites as well. And that brings a lot of kind of unique challenges. So being able to start very much from the beginning would be amazing about being able to develop things in that truly inclusive and kind of co-curated way, I think from the beginning would be um, incredible. My passion is still for definitely combining sort of science and arts. So thinking about how we could work with the best disability or disabled artists from the UK. We've got a kind of amazing heritage in the UK for disability arts. So being able to kind of unite those things and combine that mashup between science and art, I think for me would, would be incredible. Yeah, I don't know. That's a difficult one. I'm going to be thinking more on that and trying to sort of dream my perfect museum. You have to leave that one with me. You've won me over for sure. That sounds amazing. (laughs) I'm on board. And uh, Kirk, what about you? I had the benefit of uh, of going second, so I, I was able to think about the, <laughs> the answer for for a little while longer. But it's a fantastic question. I think for me, I really would love to be a part of something much more global in scope. And you know, I'm lucky in Canada that we have some fairly good legal protections in place for people with disabilities. But there are so many places that that don't, and they, not only do they not have legislation or or regulations to protect people with disabilities, but they certainly don't have any prescriptive guidance on how to design an airport or a train station or uh, or a vehicle. and And so, I would love to be a part of supporting equal access in another place outside of Canada, because I, I do really believe in a future that's barrier free. I believe mobility is a fundamental right for us. And I used this example before, but my parents live 2,200 kilometers away from me to the to the east. My brother lives 1,400 kilometers to the west in Canada. So for me, transportation and mobility are fundamental rights. And I, I think everybody should have the freedom to experience cultures, new foods, new languages. And I think that is the the foundation on which diversity is is built. And so being a part of something global, I think is is something that I would love to to do. It's not exactly a concrete example of a project, but uh, <laughs> certainly uh, the direction in which I, I hope to go. Amazing. Thank you so much and very well said. So we're sadly coming to the end of this episode. Huge appreciation to our guests, Fiona Slater and Kurt Goodlett, for sharing their time and insights with us. Thank you both so much for such an interesting conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation and have been inspired. Please head over to the website, mimagroup.com, for more information on our work or to discuss how we could help you and your organisation. If you have any questions, ideas or comments, use the hashtag, hashtag design that connects us to join the conversation. Also, don't forget to subscribe to all our future podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. See you on the next episode.